The Dickheads are presented in color. like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from all over the west coast to your brain hole this time uh we are joined from the bay area by noted and longtime <laughs> dickhead of such merit as the total dickheads blog david gill who uh, i should have gotten on this podcast a long time ago david welcome to the dickheads podcast thank well- you very much pleasure to be here yeah, I mean, you pretty much, uh, you you beat us to the whole title, Dickhead, but we had to start the podcast because no one else had done it yet, and so we, we had to. Well, it, yeah, in Dickian fashion, my mode of, of communicating the blog was became obsolete, essentially, and you're, you stepped in to fill that, that void, and uh, I think it's a great technological leap that'll take us in great new directions. Yeah, and I'm glad that our listeners are going to be able to get a chance to hear uh, uh, two uh, David's buttheads on uh, Philip K. Dick and nerd out on our story. So I don't have questions or notes. We're just going to have a conversation. We kind of started already have one, and we're just going to nerd out about what we know about Philip K. Dick and our experience as being Dickians and researching the guy and kind of get into it. But why don't you start by telling our listeners, because they most of them know me and know where I come from, but how did you get into Philip K. Dick, and what's your particular story, and and then we'll get into like the blog and everything that you did with that. Okay. Uh, well, my, my Dick experience began uh, probably around 1990, 91, maybe. I was given uh, a copy of the Scanner Darkly by my roommate. Uh, at the time, I was a stoner, conspiracy theory nut, kind of a weirdo. Like to watch Kojak, loved to read. Where were you but going to college then? Nowhere. <laughs> I was going to the school of rock and roll. I was in a, okay. a band called Hog Lady in Chicago. Okay, and you're in Chicago. Uh, yeah, and I was a high school dropout, and I I, I aspired to some some. Thi- I, I got this roommate who was in college, and. Watching him write essays for school seems so much funner than the scrubbing out the pots and pans at Fazio's restaurant where I was working. Anyway, I got this this book and um, I'd liked Stephen King. I'd been through Clive Barker. I'd been read Isaac Asimov, Gregory Benford, um, but I never really had science fiction speak to me as a counterculture person, like to really get in the trenches with me and talk about sex and drugs and rock and roll. So a scanner darkly was like, Oh my God, here it is right here. And, um, I read everything I could find pretty, pretty rapidly. And, you know, I read the divine and I read the Sutton, the biography. And I, I thought of, I was really interested in the guy. Um, but it was just kind of a, a sort of an interest like anything else. Like I like the Melvins, the band or whatever. I like this different kinds of stuff. And, I ended up at University of Hawaii in a American literature course that was focusing on like Benjamin Franklin and Frederick Douglass and all this stuff. It seemed super boring. Yeah. So I'm at the bookstore buying the books for the class section. And right next to the, the that section, there's another section of the same class from a different instructor. They're teaching Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? 
which is, well, I know that book. I'm, I'm huge. I'd never seen Philip K. Dick anywhere, you know, other than a couple of movies or whatever. So I jump into that class. Uh, it's taught by this guy whose name is Robert Onapa. And he uh, published a novel called The Pleasure Tube uh, in the late 70s. Uh, it's great pulp sci-fi sort of a, they, they almost optioned it to make a movie out of it, but they made The Black Hole instead. Very, very similar. Um, the and pleasure he, tube. I'm going to look this up while you're talking. Oh, it's great. Yeah, the, you wait until you see the the graphics and everything. It's the ultimate pulp se- late '70s sex drug sci-fi stuff. He also published a bunch of stories in fantasy and science fiction, mm-hmm. and so he became a kind of mentor to me. And he immediately taught this American literature class with T.S. Eliot's *The Wasteland*, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's *The Great Gatsby*. And Dick's, on the cover. Yeah, yeah, there you go. It's brilliant, right? Yeah. And and Dick's do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep as as essentially like like this these three works that you can see essentially American literature writ large within. And so that was like this new window that opened up like, okay, not only is this science fiction writer that I really love and think is really cool, not only is he really cool, but it turns out he's linked in and hooked up with all of this incredible literature. And he's actually, I didn't know this. He was actually responding to literature as a field. You know, he was like trying experimental narrative techniques. He was, you know, breaking the fourth wall. He was naming characters after himself. And he was, he was playing with themes like dust, you know, and do Android stream of electric sheep. If you go read T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, you know, there's the whole, I'll show you fear in a, in a handful of dust. There's this whole metaphor for dust is like this end stage of morta- of our life and, and the, you know, the finitude of mortality and all this stuff. And so from there, I got, I got pretty excited and ultimately wound up at San Francisco State, uh, wound up uh, with a degree in creative writing, uh, and can't do anything with that. So I'll just, well, let's just keep going. I, I get into the literature program and I ultimately wrote my master's thesis on Philip K. Dick and paranoia. And I looked at uh, time out of joint and the way in which that character, his, um, his paranoia depends on him being special enough to persecute important enough. One of the things about, paranoia is it's the flip side of narcissism like if paranoia is this is the supposition that i'm powerful enough important enough that there are lots of people who want to get me who want to are actively thinking about how to do that um and so you can see that in that's what dick is understands and so when he's playing with raggle gum's character in time out of joint he's saying like the more he seems the more the more the story is revealed, the more it's possible that he's completely insane because the story that's revealed is this. Well, not only is he an important person, but he's the most important person in the world. And essentially the entire universe that he's lived in is constructed around him. Like, like uh, Truman in the Truman show. Um, And and for time out of joining that, because I managed to not know what it was about before I read it. Oh, there you go. And because of the title, and I had different ideas, and so the twist actually worked for me because yeah. I, somehow I avoided the fact that Truman Show ripped it off completely. 
So for me, time out of joint actually. <laughs> oh no, I, I think it's fantastic. I think it works brilliantly. And my, my point was that like, that's part of Dick's genius right. is that he's, he knows these psychological tropes so well that he can have a character that looks like they're getting crazier as they're actually growing sane. Or that's actually grow, you know, actually looking like they're growing sane as they're getting crazier. He has that ability to like snap off the the internal character world from the external world and really play with that interior interiority. Um, but it's a it's a great novel. And then what I noticed is that you can read Dick's life the same way. That ultimately the mystical experiences are can be read as a kind of wish fulfillment for the sort of significance and um, importance that Dick was searching for his whole life. It's a really cynical read of the mystical experiences, but as a pretty hardcore materialist, I have a hard time buying any revelatory. Um, right. Concept. Yeah, I have a hard time with that too, and 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 I think it's hard for some of us who are who want to respect Phil as an artist and as a person, but at the same time, like, you know, some of the exogenous is very hard to take, you know, when, when, when you're, when you're a realist, but anywho, we'll, we'll get back to actually, (laughs) but so you did your master's thesis on Phil and then you must've wanted to express yourself in different ways how did the uh how did you enter into the philip k dick academic circles and doing the the blog like Ah. how did that happen so after my master's degree um i went to my my new mentor at san francisco state was a professor named jeffrey green and i said you know should i get a phd should i become an academic because i really want to study philip k dick and he goes this was uh, almost 15, almost 20 years ago, he goes, a PhD is going to take you 10 years beyond your master's degree. It's going to cost you a hundred thousand dollars and only 10% of PhD holders end up getting tenure track jobs. And that number has tanked since he gave me that statistic. He goes, just be a scholar. And I'm sure that what he meant was, you know, uh, submit papers to science fiction studies, attempt to get presentations at various conferences. But in my mind, I was like, no, I'm going to create this blog called The Total Dickhead. And I'm going to essentially troll all of this content that's out there that's about Phil Dick that doesn't understand anything about him. You know, all of these articles that that summarize his life because some because Total Recall remake is coming out or whatever it is, you know, and there's these sort of I call it the article writing machine, these corporate rollouts. So the whole idea was that I would just have this totally adversarial, totally snarky, uh, you know, kind of shoot down all this nonsense. And that was really fun for a while until people were like. You know, why do you have to be so critical all the time? Maybe you could just tell us what you think about Phil Dick. And and so it was, it was in a really interesting Dickian way. The whole thing was kind of collaborative. Like I did this thing. The, the main thing that happened was my buddy at Boing Boing, which was at the time this huge aggregator site, you know, put my blog on his on Boing Boing. And like, I, you know, 15,000 hits in like an hour and a half. You know, and and that 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 was it. Like I essentially kind of stamped my own credentials. And again, this sort of Dickian way, I managed a way to like like 
fraudulently like make a pass to the academic world and get myself in, you know? And so I get these weird, I get, I just get weird emails. Like I, this guy, Scott Timberg, who is this really a fan and a, an amazing writer. He wrote for the LA times before he was fired. He wrote for a, a bunch of different stuff. And he, he wanted to talk to me about Phil Dick. The, the, the synchronicity was that, um, the library of America volumes had just come out. And so suddenly there was this new way of looking at Phil Dick as like a literary author on the level of like Ernest Hemingway or T.S. Eliot or any of these other fancy pants dudes that are in this library of America. And so I kind of jumped right in there with like, okay, well, Oh, you want to talk to an academic who knows about Phil Dick? Like I was the most visible one in a lot of ways. And so, um, that, that just built all kinds of stuff. And I was just really plucky. I was a young guy. I didn't give, I didn't care. I, I just grew up in, in sort of loud rock and roll music. And I was just like, I'm going to write an email to Ann Dick and see if she'll let me come to visit her, you know? And so I'd write an email to her and she'd write back like, oh, geez, I don't know. You know, you sound really enthusiastic. I remember her saying that. And I was just like, oh, no, no, don't worry. I'm a scholar. I'm at San Francisco State. I have a family, you know, I bring my wife and kids and we go up to Point Reyes and Lo and behold, she and I developed a friendship that was partly her, you know, loving to have these, you know, highfalutin, in her mind, highfalutin academics coming to her house and asking her about her life with Philip K. Dick. You know, and I'm just thrilled to be in the presence of somebody who knew Dick in that level, you know, and we, we yeah. just, for a while, we just kind of puffed each other up. But at some point, I think we made a, a real connection and we're, we're genuinely friends. Um, and much that, you know, it's funny because you talk about how you were kind of having this adversarial relationship with just like kind of having fun with the blog yeah. of just kind of pew, pew, pewing. And, you know, we've had the situation where people get mad at us because they're saying we're not scholars when all we wanted to do in the beginning was have three friends have an excuse to have a structure to read all the Philip K. Dick books and talk about them. And, and we weren't, like meaning to become scholars of PKD at all. Like in the beginning, we were just dickheads who wanted to, because at the time we were dickheads, but we had only read, um, I had only read like seven or eight of the books, you know, I hadn't come close to reading all of them. And I don't think I was as serious of a dickhead as I am now. Right. Um, And I do take it a little seriously, but when, when, when some of the people who, like criticize, you know, and it's really funny because you and I have joked on Facebook offline, you know, about how some of the people who criticize, it's like, we're all in it together to just get to know this guy's work and get to know it. And some of the the vitriol and shit that people throw out there, it's like, I don't know, it's kind of ridiculous. But anyways, did you get some of that early on with (laughs) doing the blog? Yeah, I mean, uh, not really. Pe- people were really hungry to learn about Phil Dick when I started the blog. So for the most part, people were, it's an incredible community. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, yes, I agree for the most part, I've sat with a couple of people. Well, and you know, it starts for me in the 1990s with an email group. Uh, and in that email group, I remember learning a lot from people like Umberto Rossi, uh, Andrew Butler, um, 
Rocky uh, is a translator, right? A Italian translator. Uh, um, he, he's a, he's a tra- he's a scholar, and he yeah. wrote he's wrote one of the best um, academic secondary sources about Dick's novels. It's called um, uh, Impossible Worlds. I think it's fairly expensive because it's an academic text, but yeah. it's a great look at. It's a great. It's the best academic look at all of his work in a kind of very careful, close read. Uh, it's not as um, it's not as inventive and wild as as Lawrence Rickles work. Um, it's not as weird as Eric Davis's work, but it's an essential book for really just understanding Dick's basic motifs and and processes and i want to just say before i forget i want to say about your your podcast i watched your bit your show about ubik mm-hmm. and i gotta say that that kind of stuff dick would respond to as an author with people with people talking about his work he was much more interested in the way that fans were responding to his work as fans like you're talking about how the reveal works or how the how the pacing works or how how this the plot turns that's the stuff that dick cared about i honest to god i was at this academic thing this morning there were eight or nine of us talking about phil dick and i don't think that if dick showed up he would want to spend more than 15 seconds listening to any of it (laughs) Because it's it's like it's to a certain extent it's kind of navel gazing it's kind of like armchair quarterbacking uh, and it's you know there's an element of intellectual masturbation to it that Dick would have just been like you know what I want to I want to know what the fans think I, I don't care about these these fancy people you know yeah we talked about that a little bit in the Ubik episode when we were talking about how funny it was to him that people were like parsing. Ubik, Ubik, you know, and making it, and, and he, you know, made jokes about how um, calling it Deeks Ubik, you know, <laughs> you know, and how he was making jokes about that. And I think I, I agree. And and so some of the people who kind of laugh at that, you know, we're, we're coming at it from writers' perspectives, and a lot of times people get mad because we don't love everything. And you know, especially our hatred of cosmic puppets. Giant, yeah. Oh, huh. But um, I think, you know, Phil was pumping out books a lot faster than and there's a big difference between um, Game Players of Titan and Time Out of Joint, for example, or, (laughs) you know, and I think he would have appreciated people like not just saying like everything is genius, you know. He, I don't yeah. think he wanted that because I think he knew everything was not genius. And, you know, we had a whole discussion. It's, it, this episode hasn't come out yet on our Galactic Pot Healer because Anthony at one point said, well, don't you have a book out, David, that you're not proud of? Because we were talking <laughs> about how he was not proud of stuff. And I told him, well, it's different because I didn't feel compelled to put out the stuff that I don't like. My books yeah. that I don't like, I just don't put them out. Whereas Dick felt like he had to. He yeah, had to. but he liked Galactic Pot Healer. I mean, that... You know. Yeah, I'm not saying that one. Okay, okay. all right. I'm saying, um, like, for example, uh, Game Players of Titan. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are books in his canon that I think he put out because he felt like he had to, and he did not love everything, and that's... Yeah, a, yeah. You know. Well, he thought of himself as a writer rather than an artist, I think, and so the yeah. idea that, like, you would talk about craft rather than the 
postmodern didactic method of deconstruction as proposed by Derrida. Like he didn't have any time for that. And, and yeah. because he's pounding out, that's food on the table. That's not, you know, but, 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 but the guy's also just like a ridiculous, like a savant of a genius. And so even when he's farting out like mid-level pulp sci-fi, there's some there's moments and there's some, yeah, there's a strata of it that transcends anything in the, any of his contemporaries, in my opinion. And had he, had he a different life where he wrote 10 books rather than 45 or whatever, you know, and he'd really done those 10 books the way that his contemporaries getting six figures had. You can't even, you see, that's the thing though. You, why, why even speculate? Cause it's just, you yeah. can't do it. Everything, every, if everything were different, everything would be different. But, um, and some books got nuked by, editor. I mean, like, um, uh, I in the sky, I still love I in the sky. It's brilliant, but Wolheim kind of nuked that book. By That's interesting. Yeah. Well, because uh, you didn't let him do Christianity, and huh. all the Baha'i shit is bullshit. And yeah. And and if, in my opinion, if he hadn't, if Wilhelm had not done that, I in the Sky would be a fucking masterpiece. And the one thing that keeps it from being a masterpiece is the is the editorial fuckery hmm. from from Wilhelm. Um, yeah, that might not have been publishable though. I don't think. I don't think a mainstream. I mean. Oh, I agree. I yeah, agree. yeah. Have, that might have come out posthumously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How about that? Right. That would have been something. That's an interesting. That's. I wonder if at any point there's the the earlier draft that exists without Mulheim's edits. Well, honestly, before the the um, before the pandemic happened, one of my goals was to go to the papers in Fullerton, and yep. my number one thing i wanted to look for was an early draft of eye in the sky so but you know most of those papers aren't in fullerton anymore oh really oh see these are the things we learn yeah well this is this is a this is a less uh this is not a great story but essentially what happened was um the the dick estate wanted to put the the pipers at uc berkeley oh. and um pamela jackson who edited the exegesis and is the sister of Lethem's ex-wife, something like that. They have some interesting relationship. She's married to this guy, Stephen Black, who's the special collections coordinator at the Cal library. And they had it all ready to go. It's going to be like, you know, temperature controlled room. It was going to have the, you know, the highest level of environmental controls. And it was going to be like this incredibly important stack. And, um, what the wouldn't give it up. What they said was, well, once once you give this to us, we own it. And the the estate said, no, we're not going to give it to you to own it. And so my understanding is that the papers were picked up in an SUV and driven to the estate's lawyer's office. And uh, when I was working on the exegesis at one point, I went to that lawyer's office at like the top floor of this building in downtown San Francisco with the most ridiculous panoramic views I've ever seen. And the minute I walk in there, they're like, would you like something to drink, sir? And they're bringing a Coke to me cold with like a, you know, a napkin around it. And they're leading us into the room. And then they bring in this Tupperware, put it on the table. That's the exegesis. Here you go. <laughs> Essentially that, that was the paperwork that, uh, 
that Pamela had decided was going to be in the exegesis. So we were looking at essentially all of that raw copy. And I mean, the, the, the disjunctive disjunction of that, of like looking at this work written by a person at absolute, you know, hanging on by a thread, you know, to see it in this office where somebody's clearly getting paid $800 an hour to host us you know, it was just, it was just wild, <laughs> but that's where the papers are now. <laughs> but as far as like doing the blog and doing all that and doing the masters. So you had a unique perspective being in the Bay area. So maybe let's get into that. Okay. Because being in the Bay area, you have the position to be able to go visit. And you have the position to go visit those papers. Yeah. Go to all those places. In, in, his, uh, in the Bay Area, and um, by the way, as as we come out of this Corona fuckery, um, I know I'm keep using that word a lot today. Uh, <laughs> you can expect a visit from me. Yeah, I, absolutely. I'll I'd be happy to give you the tour. You know, yeah. I've got a, a two or three mile walking tour in Berkeley that takes you from the house he shared with his mom to the Francisco Street house to. Uh, university music to you know the Sather Gate at Cal. It's really amazing. All right, I, this summer, this summer yes, we're doing that. Uh, we're on it. I get my second dose tomorrow, so we're on it. Um, so I, I'm trying to remember how I got into going to look at those different places. There was a website that was called Philip K. Dick Slept Here dot com, I think. And I believe I believe you can find it on the oh, on the Wayback Machine or whatever. And that was the first way I, I started to do it. And I think the first house I went to go see was the Francisco Street house, which is famously the one that he just moved into. And he went to go pull the switch for the light, the cord for the light. But he realized, oh, it's a switch on the wall. And that gave him the in, the inspiration for the time out of joint yeah. trip there. Um so I, I, where he wrote um, Man in the High Castle and Three Stigmata still there? Uh, the hovel. Um no, that was written in Point Reyes, and from that's that's one of my white whales. Um, Anne kind of pointed to where the the what she said that she called it the shack or the hovel was. Yeah, and I my understanding is it's gone. Uh, yeah, um, I'm sure it is probably. I don't I don't know to be honest. I just got an email a month or so ago from this guy who lives in that neighborhood who thinks that he might have that hovel on his property. I told him the best thing you could do is not find out because, you know, as long as you don't know, it might be. And that's probably the best you could ever hope for. So, you know. Well, we should uh, take a look and see. If it yeah. The, I mean, the problem is that it's the house that Anne lived in is at the at a corner. And essentially you would cross this sort of plot of land and then it, the house was the shack was on another lot. She pointed me to this Caldwell Banker real estate agent in Point Reyes, which is this tiny, unbelievably tiny little town, and said, you know, he might know. And I sat around waiting for him at the real estate agency for, I don't know, an hour or something. He never showed up. It's just, it's like an episode of, of Newhart or something like this. It's just an Airbnb town with these sort of, you know, rich white people up there, um, uh, boutique farming, for lack of a better word, it's it's wild to imagine uh, Dick having having been part of that scene. Well, um, what's interesting too is we know that he had a little bit of a walk because he yep. talked about 
the eye of God staring at yep. him while he was yep. looking to write Game Players of Titan. Yeah. And, and so we know that he had a little bit of – so it wasn't right there. So we know a little bit about that. So de- decompress – I mean, and this is like 40 years later, so who knows, you know. But it is interesting to think about because I think it's important for people to remember, like, when we're writing our books these days or we're doing our research, we're sitting, you know, in certain spots and we're doing it. And it is fun to deconstruct where our favorite writers were doing these things. And and because Phil moved around a lot and had such weird and interesting situations, there are lots of places to check out, you know. So that walking tour around Berkeley, does it include the spot where the record store was that he worked, where he yeah, met Mount? Yeah, yeah. That's harder to that's harder to pin down because some of the address numbering systems seem to have changed. But uh, yeah, all, all of that is still there, and uh, yeah, it's it's wild. I want to say about the the Point Reyes property. The thing that struck me about that was. Um, like you're saying, there's this huge, essentially it seems like a vacant lot that's next to them. And it's, it's pretty open. There's not a lot of trees or anything. And apparently this vernal pond forms there every season. And so that would be like a little pond that would be there during the raining season. They said they have incredible frogs that would be around there. And, and, and Phil would take the kids and a blanket and melted chocolate and sit by this vernal pond and listen to the frogs. And, to my mind, it's the it's the most pleasant memory I can associate Philip K. Dick having. Right. You know, it's a completely pastoral, emotional family unity moment, and I that's the kind of stuff that that my brain looking at this guy's life and like struggling to figure out how he made it through it and all that. That's the, the the sustenance I found are these little memories of of good times that where Phil really he loved that family and they loved him and then it drove him crazy it, he I think in part because the pressures on him were so great and he was taking a lot of speed to churn out those novels and that was his golden period in my opinion from man in the high castle through stigmata is dick's most consistent brilliance there's not a stinker in there and he's fire he's at that point he's confident enough from winning the hugo that he's able to really fully embrace this this mode where he's taking high end literary tropes and themes and perfectly embedding them in science fiction in a way that complicates them and makes them more subtle and makes them refract in this really interesting way. Yeah. The late sixties to me, and we're almost done with this period. So, but to me, that's the, the strongest period for sure. Well, that's, it's, I mean, it's that decade. And so it's the, it's bookended by the really brilliant, really great, a spate of brilliance at the beginning from sixty. 60 to 64 and then the end which is maybe 68 to 71 with that really kind of a there's that sort of a dark cloud 64 to 60 something where i'm i'm living in wet in oakland and this house is 0.7 miles away from the house that dick lived in 1964 Mm -hmm. and when i was for instance talking to ann about that you know she dick moved away he was he was clearly losing it um she took the kids to go visit him and this house in, in East Oakland and she's coming up the driveway and he's coming out of the house, waving a pistol in the air. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? And so again, like the the fascinating fired scanner darkly, basically. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, part of the trip of all of this is like the how charged all of these locations are. You know, so in some cases they're charged with this incredible stories of like a family unity around a vernal pond. And in some cases they're charged with these like malevolent, you know, honestly just crazy, sad um, episodes. And so it's it being a dickhead isn't it's not like anything else. I I have a fairly consistent and and, uh, deep interest in T.S. Eliot and, and Dashiell Hammett. Uh, a writer that Dick really, really loved. And there's nothing in their lives when you plumb them at this level that is, you know, I mean, this is like the King Tut of literary archaeology, you know, like, holy, I mean, there's this thing buried in there and that happened and oh my God. And, you know, uh, it's, it's, there's, there's nothing like it. And it's, it's both a, 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 a boon and a curse. The boon is there's all this amazing stuff to discover the curse is, you know, that each one of these things you discover is going to break somebody's heart. And it's really hard for me when it's like, I respect Philip K. Dick. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't, but the guy wasn't like a saint walking on earth, right? Like he had complications and he had problems. And so sometimes when I hear like, you know, Phil deserves more as if I have to, gush about every novel without having any kind of critical comments. I'm just kind of like, yo, slow down a little bit. The guy had his ups and downs, right? So let's not talk about him like he's a saint on earth. And you discovered a lot of this by being in the spots where he lived. And that's such a supercharged and interesting thing, but cool. Yeah, very cool. And, you know, ultimately, like, I'm glad I know this stuff. You know, there was a sort of like dark night of the soul where I was like, oh, my God, after these women have told me how he punched him in the face, how do I continue to, you know, maintain interest or whatever? And to be honest with you, over the last couple of years, I kind of drifted out of it because the I felt like I kind of reached the end. All I was hitting was this sort of negative stuff. I couldn't, I I honestly can't really cast the guy's life in a way that produces a happy ending or makes people feel all warm and fuzzy in the inside. I mean, if we're going to talk about who deserves what, you know, Philip K. Dick is the last person we ought to be thinking about. You know, the people that deserve better are women in Africa, for instance, you know. So the idea that we're going to run around with our hair on fire saying that some, you know, privileged white dude who had a fantastic run as a science fiction writer is somehow being mistreated by political correctness or academia or whatever it is. I I got no time for that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and and I do think, you know, he's getting his two long after I I know it sucks that it happened after his death, that the kind of respect that he wanted didn't happen until after he died. That's too bad for him, but guess what? His it's providing for his kids, which I think he would appreciate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And and, uh, for for the women that he cared about, whether, you know, he was perfect husband or not. um, You know, I think I I believe Phil would have appreciated that his 
for example, his daughter has this great career producing works based, you know, t- television series based on the man in the high castle, for example. And I, I think so too. And I think specifically that he had a daughter that did that would be super important to him because of he had that weird relationship with women where on the one hand, he was incredibly sexist and misogynistic. On the other hand, he, he was a kind of a feminist and understood that women have it tough. Um, so I think that's exactly right. I think he would he would be very happy about that. I'd be interested to know how he would how it would feel for him to have to see all of this without being able to control it. So, uh, all right. So, anything I want to get, I want to talk about something because you know we did our tribute episode to Tony Boucher a while back, and I do want to talk about the influence that Boucher and his group had. Do you, do, have you been able to find like any of the locations where they had? where Boucher lived or where they had their writers groups? No, I've never looked. And honestly, I, I think they are listed in the, in the divine invasion. So I, I should definitely take a look. Um, I know I, uh, Tony died in the seventies. Is that right? Yeah. So it was him and Pike that died like one. Yeah. Yeah. And there was the, it was the rib cancer that, that got him. And that was crazy for Phil. Yeah. Um, what's interesting to me about that early writers group is a couple of things. And we were talking about this this morning in this panel discussion is that because of his agoraphobia, Cleo was bringing his stories to that group and essentially workshopping them for him. But also Dick's mother, Dorothy was bringing her own stories to that same group. So, to be a fly on the wall. That, that's and a that, thing for me. I did not hear that he sent Cleo with, with the stories. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's my understanding. Well, he had to have gone to some of them because he had pretty serious and good interactions with Boucher. Yeah, but maybe those were just one-on-one. I'd, I'd, I would be really surprised if Dick, during that period of his life, would go someplace where there was more than two people in the room and sit there. Well, and, and when he his first introduction to Boucher was working in the record store, Boucher was a customer. And okay, because Boucher had an opera radio show that he hosted. That he did ah, there. okay, right? And yeah, so they would talk about opera, and it was Boucher who, by him knowing Boucher through music first, and then finding out of his relationship to science fiction was game was a game changer for Phil because. He had not taken writing science fiction seriously until he saw that Boucher was a serious science fiction, mm. right? Huh. Yeah, that's a gr- that's a great t- uh, like plot point right there that yeah. I hadn't had clarified well, for me. And I know about that because when we did our Boucher episode, I went real deep on 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 Boucher and his role because I think Boucher. It's funny. There are certain people that I think are so important to Dick's life and his success that you have to talk about like Boucher, Wolheim. And ironically, one that I want to get into that I think is overlooked is Dan O'Bannon, because I don't think any of the movie success would have happened without Dan O'Bannon champion, championing um, second variety, hmm. which led to do Android stream of electric street getting taken seriously as a film. Huh? And, and so one of my white whales is I've been trying to get Diane O'Bannon for the podcast. And, and and I know she might not know a lot about his relationship with Dick, but I just think Dan O'Bannon as a writer plays a role in the success of Phil K. Dick. On yeah. I always tag that to Hampton Fancher. That's, that's the interaction I'm fascinated by 
where Fancher goes to Dick and I, I guess they, they don't get along and, and Dick hates Fancher's treatment and everything. There's a really cool lethal. Well, I liked his screenplay, his first draft of the screenplay. Yeah. It's great. There's a really great Lethem essay where Lethem says that, you know, essentially he hung out with Hampton Fancher. And if Phil Dick didn't like Hampton Fancher, then Phil Dick is an asshole. Like that, that if you cannot like this guy, there's something. Supposed to be very nice. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that is, that's fascinating. But I think Dick was so skeptical of all that movie stuff and like Hollywood and the. And and, and an argument for Hampton Fancher is that he and David Webb Peebles. Peoples, who yeah. was hired to replace him, yeah. became very good friends. Yeah. He was hired to replace him yeah. on, on Blade Runner. Although Hampton Fancher did come back and do the last yeah. draft. So he was back involved. But Dan O'Bannon and Dick talked a lot during huh. the writing of Second Variety. And I know that for a fact. That that's huh. a thing that Phil is quoted as like having liked his screenplay, as having read his screenplay. But I think Dan O'Bannon championing Second Variety and then the success of Alien. Yeah. One of the reasons why Hampton Fancher's script for Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep moved forward. It was also Dan O'Bannon at the same time buying the rights to Total Recall, which did not get made for years later. But Total Recall and Second Variety were both optioned in the 70s before Blade Runner. Right. So that kind of so I personally believe because we're we're we get all this attention to PKD because of the success of the movies. Yeah. I don't think that would have happened without Dan O'Bannon. I think Dan O'Bannon is the one who discovered PKD movie wise. And for that reason, I think the three like kind of just the people who discovered him. Yeah. Are Boucher, Wolheim and Dan O'Bannon. And the, and the, yeah, you know, I mean, the the success or the fandom by Le Guin and uh, and uh, Stanislaw Lem, yeah, and and that was important. But at the same time, those three. But anyways, back to Boucher. So the record store thing happened, and then the group happened. What's really cool to think that he wouldn't even go. I wonder how he take. I, I now I'm picturing Cleo coming back and saying, "Here's what they said yep. about, yeah, and and you know, but he had to have had it because he he said, you know, and all his dedications to Boucher yeah. and all that, how important he was. Well, they they have definitely became close friends, and I, I would imagine they they interacted. Um, an interesting thing about the record store is that if you look at Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and Isidore's um, hesitancy to call the woman whose cat has died. That's Dick writing about how Herb Hollis and his experience at University Music, where Herb Hollis was like, no, you have to talk to customers. You can't just sit in the back. That forced Dick into social situations that allowed him the kind of social skills where he met a woman and had sex and then eventually met a woman that he liked and decided to marry in the, in the part of Cleo. So, um, you know, that, that, that time at that record store is crazy important for getting Dick a little bit out of his um, debilitating agoraphobia. And so his mother actually played a role in his early writing. That's crazy. I didn't, I did not. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and she, you know, she's wild, man. She's into like Dianetics and all this crazy stuff, and you know, they're they're sitting around when Dick's ten years old, and they're talking like adults to one another. I, uh, I really that a lot of the presentation I gave this morning it had to do with Dick and his mother, and that's a, just a really here's another relationship that without that you don't get Dick's. Uh, nothing, you know, I mean, there's so much of his hatred for logic and his, um, the, the, the makeup of his antagonists and everything is right there, just all tied up with his messed up relationship with his mom. Interesting. Yeah. Right. Again. And like, that's really hard because for instance, Issa loves her grandmother and doesn't want to think anything negative about her, you know? So again, it's that, that's the thing that really just tore me up over time was that, I would get so excited about all these discoveries, but yet every discovery was just a tragedy for some person or other who actually knew Dick and, and lived it. And I would get these emails where it's like, you're terrible. You're a horrible person. How can you put this out there? You're evil, you know? And I, I, what can you say? Like, I, I, I'm a scholar. I'm interested in this stuff. I'm, I'm sensitive to all of it. But, you know, from my perspective, particularly Dick's treatment of women, the worst thing we can do is gloss over that. You know, I mean, it's one thing to respect Dick and say that, you know, we shouldn't sully his memory or his legacy or whatever. But what about these women? I mean, in order to honor his, his get he so that he can get what he deserves, we have to pretend that none of this stuff ever happened. We have to erase these women's stories, you know, and I'm now I've been in this game long enough that I, I'm out of fucks to give, to be honest. Like, I just I, I, I'm curious. I want to help. I want to I won't want to hurt anybody. But if there's information out there, it's my job as somebody who's dedicated this stuff to put it out there with as little spin as I can. Well, and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And then it gives us a, an eye into this guy's creation, you know, and nobody wants their dirty laundry like out there but at the same time you know uh, so much of it he put so much of it just below the surface anyways because and that's what the joke on our show came with the the consulting divorcepedia you know because like you have to know you have to know when he was writing the book what stage of happy phil divorced phil about to get divorced phil i mean you can pretty much guess it when when you when you read it all in chronological order like we are yeah or publication order like we are but um but it's it's just it's i don't know anyways back to the voucher thing and it's funny cuz i i'm going to i will say that to me one of the greatest discoveries for me in doing this is that when i started this podcast i didn't know who tony voucher was yeah and I kept seeing his name and it was a running joke on the podcast. Shout out to Tony because we've mm-hmm. seen things about, yeah. you know, so like shout out to Tony is a, is a thing. But now for me, one of the greatest revelations in this was the impact and the role of Don Wilhelm and Tony Boucher on the genre. Yeah. Yeah. And Russ Galen also and yeah. David Hartwell, all of those editors, particularly Hartwell and Galen where, Dick had enough of a reputation that they were able to negotiate so that he could do some slightly different stuff so that he could get Vallis published and stuff like that. I mean, we owe the fact that those things are in publication to, I think Russ Galen would be my guess. 
And now I reached out to him for the podcast, and he all he responded was, "I no longer talk about Philip K. Dick." And yeah, and it was kind of it's it was it was the biggest bummer I've ever gotten <laughs> my email about this show. So yeah, all four of those. There's a lot of important names behind the scenes, and when you get into this, you learn this. But yeah. anyway, back to Tony. Uh, so Tony to me was like one of those revelations because his role in fun- forming the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, yeah. that alone, um, you know, Har- Harlan Ellison, uh, Richard Matheson, Philip K. Dick, like um, Ursula Le Guin, like, um, I mean, I, I don't even begin to know the names. If we had Gordon Von Gelder on here, he would actually literally pull out the cards with the sales and which he did on our voucher episode. Uh, <laughs> wow. you know, we mentioned Matheson and he pulls out like the, the little note card that has the amount of money that he paid that the magazine paid to Richard Matheson for his first story while we're talking. And you're wow. just, it's, this is mind boggling, but anywho, like voucher and his role takes it is And you were talking earlier about um, the connection with Heinlein and that is his connection to Heinlein because Boucher famously was his was in a science fiction group in L.A. with Hubbard and Heinlein. Oh, and wow, that's right. The Kuttners, yeah, right, which inspired his murder mystery novel *Rocket to the Morgue*, which yep. everyone should read, <laughs> um, it, it, because it's it's a history of science fiction thinly veiled as a murder mystery, and that's his connection. But and you had a chance to see um, a book of. You got to see some of uh, Philip K. Dick's collection, correct? Like, well, that- yeah, I saw, I went to uh, Locus, the the trade magazine's headquarters, was in the Berkeley Hills. This was probably in 1999, and Charles Brown, who was the editor there for years, uh, since passed away. He said, "Do you want to see the largest private science fiction collection in the world?" And of course, I'm dying to. So he takes me down to his basement, and he has a series of accordion shelves. I've never seen so many books in a person's basement in my life. It was really incredible. I wouldn't I wonder even... if Judith Merrill's collection in Toronto is bigger, but go ahead. Well, I, Charles, Charlie Brown would tell you his was the biggest. Uh, I think it was a point of pride for him. Anyway, he, I said, well, let me see your Phil Dick books. And as he's, as he's cranking out that particular aisle so we can get in there, he says, oh, yeah, I have all of the Phil Dick books owned by Robert Heinlein. Oh, amazing. I'd love to see that. So we pull out one, and I honestly, I can't remember which book it was. It might have been, I'm trying to think now, it feels like it was Solar Lottery or something. But I crack it open, and it's signed from Dick to Heinlein. It says, Dear Robert, Dear Heinlein, um, uh, you are the greatest science fiction writer in the universe. Thanks for the dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign. Love, Phil. And... I found out later reading the the um, letters that I think Heinlein actually fronted Dick's, you know, some money, like five or six hundred bucks. Just like, oh, I heard you were struggling. Here you go. So um, I've heard that, too. Yeah. One, I think one of the fascinating things about your interest in Dick is that you're a writer. You're really enmeshed in the weeds of the publishing industry. And that's something that for most Dick readers and even fans it's pretty opaque for them to understand how that market worked. And yet it's fundamental for understanding Dick's output and his, his concerns and his pacing and everything, you know? So we have an entire section that's just on the writing, like what we know about how he, his time writing the books, because to me, that's, 
that's crucial and it's important. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but that's, you know, for literary scholarship, that's all kind of, that's more problematic because yeah. anytime you're looking at something that's not the text, right, that's not what was ultimately published, you can't help but spin what you're seeing. You know, well, maybe this is, uh, did get pub. Maybe Dick took this out because X, Y, or Z, you know, it, as soon as you're looking at something that didn't hit the marketplace, you, you don't know, there's no way to know why, I guess in some cases you might, but yeah, we got, especially in galactic popular, because like you could tell he tried to write almost the the same characters and settings in a children's book right beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when you look at that, like you, it's impossible not to think about like, well, well, what was he thinking? And like, why, why did he repeat these characters? And I, I assume he didn't think that Nick and the Glimming was going to ever get published. Otherwise I don't think he would have done galactic popular next. Right. And, and yeah, well, look at the crossover between we can build you and do Android stream of electric sheep. He's very clearly pulling characters out of, we can build you that hadn't sold and putting them into do Android stream of electric sheep. And Umberto Rossi's saying, look, they're actually sequels. There's actually do Android's dream is the sequel to we can build you because that's the Rosen family. That's the yeah. story that we can build you is the story of the Rosen family that eventually is the, the corporation that makes the, uh, the replicants. So there, there's not there yet. Not that one yet. Oh shit. All right. Well, I've got to be careful. I don't uh, <laughs> no, spoil no, it out no, for you. Okay. No, because I, most of our listeners have probably read all of them. You know, it, it's, it's funny because, um, you know, we, I thought that was essential for our journey is that we were people who were fans of Philip K. Dick, but we were having the experience of reading. We wanted our listeners to experience with us our experience of doing the complete read through. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I tried something similar on my blog where, for instance, I tried to blog the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. Yeah. Where I would write, you know, I'd read the chapter and then I'd write up what I thought was significant about it. And I'd tie in this, that, or the other thing. And ultimately, it was just too daunting a gig. Like, I, I didn't want to spend my entire summer break cloistered in a house doing that stuff. But that's it. I mean, that's the, that's, there's something about your, your admiration for Phil Dick where you read this text and you kind of go through it. And for me, maybe I'm just talking about myself, but I read them as books. Yeah. As like, okay, they're fun. I'm enjoying them. Then I, th- and I think I probably read about a dozen. Then I read Sutton and my, my appreciation is suddenly, you know, quadrupled because I'm like, Oh my God, not only is this a, like, Oh, okay. It's a fun book or whatever. And it's got drugs in it, which is great. But the, the way in which it's operating all these different levels, I mean, whew. yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. But I, yeah. Well, you know, so, but as far as that tradition and that connection, it's funny because I think Heinlein and a lot of the, I'm sure he went on to, uh, I'm sure, I, I think later on he didn't appreciate Heinlein as much. This is one of those, like, he has, a, he has a great line of about stranger in a strange land. He said, you could roll up a joint in that book and you still wouldn't get off. <laughs> you know, I, I think that he saw Heinlein as the ultimate straight. Uh, the ultimate, like, essentially a, th- a kind of an authority figure, a, a kind of a person who ultimately 
uh, sides with what Dick would consider the opposition, you know. I think yeah. that if uh, the jackbooted thugs were, were knocking on Dick's door, you know, Heinlein would be like, yeah, yeah, and look in the toilet. I hear he puts drugs in there, you know. <laughs> well, and it's good that we have Tessa around every once in a while tell us, like, which books he did like. And, you know, like, I remember when we posted our our Canical for Leibowitz episode, she was like, oh, Phil loved that book. Yeah. And it's like, you know that if she's remembering that he liked it, that he must have really liked it. And uh, it's it's good every once in a while to know, like, because I, I'm sure he was a pretty harsh critic as he as he got older. I mean, when he was younger, he was way into the Avon vote and to yeah. all that stuff. But, you know, who knows what, like, towards the end, what he was able to still get anything out of. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a really interesting question. I would guess he was reading John Bruner. I would guess he was reading Ursula Le Guin, um, but I, but you know, I think can I my read of the Sutton thing is that the last few years the exegesis stuff sucks up more and more of his time, and so I would guess he's probably not reading a whole lot of fiction. Yeah. Um, and in the exegesis, his literary connections are super weird. Like he spends a ton of time on Hamlet. And it's like, Hamlet? Really? You got on Hamlet, huh? And, he's, and he cuts everything through Hamlet for a while and then moves on to some other, you know, well, maybe it's uh, the tachyon theory or whatever. I, it's just bonkers. And I, I just, that stuff kind of just breaks my heart. Um, yeah, and there are some books, especially like, and if I'm being honest, like from that era, I actually think I'm more of a fan of Bruner than I am PKD, to be honest. <laughs> and, and, um, and every once in a while, like, you know, you find a quote where he talks of, you know, Bruno wrote an introduction for him and he wrote it, you know, and, 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 and that kind of stuff. And it's just like, God, I would love to know what Phil thought of the sheep look up, for example, or yeah. stand on Zanzibar. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of look for quotes on that and, you know, and, and I know Tessa has told us that he really respected Bruner and he had a lot of, a lot of respect for, for him. And, so when we do Dick adjacent work, we, we definitely have covered a lot of Bruner and that's partially just my love and appreciation. And my personal feeling, just everything aside, I think stand on Zanzibar is the greatest science fiction novel of the 20th century. And like, I just barred on whatever, but I also think as a dickhead, I can see, even though I know Don Passos is like the biggest influence on stand on Zanzibar um, I think Phil was a huge influence on Bruner throughout. It, it is obvious that Bruner respected Dick and vice versa. Yeah. And those two, and for, for anybody out there who's a huge dickhead, who's made it this far listening to us yeah. nerd out. If you have not read Bruner at this point, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Fix that. Read Bruner. You, I, you're already out of PKD books to read at this point. Then then you'll do yourself a favor. I know there's some space opera uh, like written for Don Wolheim, specifically Bruder novels out there, but the ones that are genius are genius and cannot be fucked with. So he was doing the same thing as Phil writing certain, certain books just to make Don Wolheim happy, you know? Yeah. 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 So, so, uh, so David, like, um, (laughs) What a 21st century Philip <laughs> fandom, you know, like, how, you know, Philip K. Dick, 
on the internet. What what do you think of this? Like, oh, it's brutal, man. Have you spent time in that giant Philip K. Dick Facebook group? That's like I don't I don't even know how many people are are in there anymore. I remember being in it when it was pretty small, but I think it's twenty thousand now or something, and it's insane the 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 various ways that people understand try to possess Phil Dick, cast him as this, that, or the other thing. Um, I, I, I hate it. <laughs> Thanks. I hate it. That would be my reaction to tw- 21st century Dick fandom. Um, I came, like I said, I came from this community that started in the 1990s that used to communicate over an email group. Yeah. And to me, that was the most incredible group of friends and we you know we talked about phil dick a lot but ultimately that email group became a community where we talked about postmodernism, where people argued about whether phil dick you know was crazy or not or whether he was a christian or whatever and i learned so much doing that and then i guess it was 2010 i went to colorado for lord running clam's first dick fest and met all these people like Patrick Clark, who does the PKD otaku, and Frank Hollander, who's like the most otaku dick fan I've ever met. And, uh, you know, Lord Running Clam and all those guys, Sam, uh, Sam Umland and all these folks. And it was like a family reunion of people who never met before. And you'd, you'd walk to a, a group of people talking and you'd instantly know, oh, they're talking about the break-in. Cool. And you'd, and you'd, you'd, you'd join the conversation and you'd, you'd throw in, oh, yeah. And by the way, he told Doris that it was drug dealers. So all that speculation was nonsense. You know, you go, yeah, can you believe it? And, and then so I'm, or later I was so inspired by that community. I said, I'm going to set this up for dickheads at, at San Francisco State. And we did that in 2012. And the whole time I'm planning it, I'm like, I'm not even worried. These people are totally cool. Everybody's going to be cool with this. It's going to be, you know, to a certain degree, they're going to be problems. We're going to fly by the seat of our pants. This isn't a high-end academic convention. This isn't a science fiction conference. This is something new we're inventing. I knew it would be cool, and it was. There was, like, one guy who was pissed that, like, the movie didn't start when we said it was going to. Everybody else was just so happy to be among people who – we're in this esoteric stuff to the same degree. I, I, I like it. Like these people who learn Klingon, you know, like imagine spending all your time learning Klingon and then there's nobody to talk to. You know, this, these conventions were like these people who've taught themselves Klingon in their closet, all getting together to be able to speak this language that resonates with them and, and, and expresses something that the English language can't. That shit was, it's been so great. And when I get on these online forums, there's none of that. It's just pure hot takes. You're wrong. I'm right. This is how Dick is. He's not like that. There's no nuance or ambiguity to the way that anybody's casting him. If they're conservative, they're convinced that Dick is this hardcore libertarian. If they're con- you know, if they're liberal, they're convinced he's like a, a Marxist, you know, which he's not. As a Marxist, I can tell you he's not a Marxist. Well, um, Philip K. Dick would have been amused by the confusion because he did like to confuse people about that. I mean, yeah, but it's just so depressing to see that ultimately, even if you make it like the shit that people really on a on a kind of mainstream level think about you and the way that they kind of process your art 
Like it is, it's a little bit sad. It's sad to me. I guess I'm just a, a snob that's locked up in my ivory tower, but like, I, I don't want to see people like, you know, inventing some simplistic image of this guy and then clinging to it in spite of all countervailing evidence. And, yeah. and I see that no matter how people choose to cast him, they're, they're clinging to that identity that they've created for him. And that was one of the first things that I, I learned as a, as somebody studying this was like, there's not, there's no coherent identity there that you can suss out. He's like a paradox. He's like, these physics problems where he has more mass on the inside than the outside, you know, almost every time you look for quotes from Phil on whatever book, like let's say you're looking at uh, just pull a random dead Martian time slip. You're going to find quotes where he says it's the worst book he ever wrote. And then you're going to find ones where I I feel really proud of this one. And and you're going to find he was, he was a very contradictory person. And we learned very early on in the podcast that you can't always trust <laughs> the quotes that you find. No, no. Or, or it's like it's like a Donald Trump tweet. You know, if he said something, if you if you if you search Twitter, you can find he said the opposite four years before. You yeah. know, when the other guy was president or whatever. Yeah, there's yeah. a quote for that. Yeah, exactly. And and that's and and that's that's super fascinating about Dick. Not just that um, he's a bullshitter, but that. And that his quotes are inconsistent. He tells the story to different people, different ways, depending on who they are. Right. So when he tells Ray Nelson, who is his atheist friend from Berkeley, who's not going to buy any of this pink beam bullshit. What he tells Ray Nelson is that the pink beam bounced off the the Girl Scout cookies glasses, you know, And so when the, one of the first people I met was Ray Nelson. I went to a screening of the gospel according to Philip K. Dick, which is a really early documentary. I'm sure it's on um, YouTube now. It's not bad. It's not as good as the Argentinian one. I went to a screening of that at the Berkeley Library. That was probably 1999. And I met Ray Nelson and I said, like, as a young green buck, I said, I'm going to write a biography of Phil Dick, sir. And he said, no, you're not. You'll never write a biography about that guy because he never said the same thing twice, you know, <laughs> and it's and and like lo and be and I was like, ha ha, that's very funny, Ray. No, seriously, I'm going to do it. And then what I've learned over time is that that was probably the most prescient, profound advice I was given, like right out of the gate. Don't even try, kid. Give it up. <laughs> that's the that's the advice I should have taken, to be honest, because. There's no there there. There's no coherent set of ideas or, or, or ideologies or anything. I mean, the guy, Dick said that Mussolini was a great man, you know, and then at the same time would like despair about autocratic dictators. So there's just, it's nothing coherent there. It's, um, it's well, like, Ray, ja- Ray, it's jazz music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ray Nelson was, uh, um, was an interesting one. Um, Okay, so um, one of the things about um, Ganymede Takeover when we did it was that Ray Nelson was this big mystery to us. So you got a chance to actually meet him, right? So because um, w- we were really interested in how he collaborated because it was the first book we've read that was a collaboration. And I know with Zelazny, he just had Zelazny finish the book that he didn't feel like he could finish, which is different. It sounds like he and Ray Nelson worked together 
Yeah, yeah. I, shoot, at some point I knew a lot about this. I'm afraid I might misspeak, but my basic understanding is that um, I actually just uh, texted, I just Facebook messaged you a picture of this house that Phil Dick lived in that's about a half a mile from here. Okay. And that was the house where Ray Nelson, Avram Davison, Grania Davis, Phil Dick, and some others were getting together for these kind of like a Mary Zimmerman Bradley, right? right? All of those folks were gathering at that apartment and other apartments in the East Bay and having these kind of like bull sessions where they were just like, I mean, imagine being a fly on the wall for some of those meetings, you know, where they're just getting, just hanging out and talking out plots. And my understanding is that Ray and Phil got on to something that they were both interested in. And I think that it went chapter by chapter uh, that Dick wrote a, there's the, there's the house that Dick yeah, so wrote. If you're uh, on the YouTube version, not the audio. You can see the house now. Right. Um, the, um, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. Uh, so they got on to something at one of these bull sessions. Oh yeah. Yeah. So they got on to something. And I think that it went that, that Dick would write, Either he wrote the first half or they wrote a chapter and then another chapter and uh, switched back and forth. But my sense is that it's much more collaborative in its genesis than the um, than the collaboration with Zelazny, which you point out was just Dick saying, I don't know how to end this. Can you do it for me, bud? That's that's the way I take that. Yeah. Um, So but he and Ray Nelson. um yeah, so they so he must have gotten over his agoraphobia enough that he was part of that writers group, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I think that it was you know groups of three or four or five people that he knew pretty well would be okay. That's also in the '64, so that's post working at University Records uh, or University Music or whatever they called it. Um, and and so I think that he had really gotten over that a bit because he did go to conventions and do that kind of thing. He did, he did. That's true, and and it's impossible to know how much of this stuff you know when when you're trying to understand a person and you ask people who knew him even if you ask them 50 questions you get this limited amount of information and then that has to stand in for all the things that you don't know you know so what we know about dick is that he had this issue with agoraphobia we really have no idea if that came and went if it was situational, if it was sometimes worse than others, if it was something that he could talk his way through if he had to. And, and we and we never will. So that's that's one of the bummers of all of this is that for all the data that you get, in, in some ways that data just, just stands in to knock out some other level of nuance or subtlety that fills in for what you don't know, you know, and, and what you ultimately don't know is what's going on in Phil Dick's brain. So, uh, it's, uh, it's a, it's an, it's like, it's like, um, it's like putting on those gloves and then you put the gloves on and you go through the, you know, and you're behind the plexiglass and you're dealing with the radioactive, whatever's, you know, (laughs) you, you're, you're, you're messing with the materials, but you never have them in your hands. You've never, you've never touched them. You have a, a level of remove from the thing that you're feeling and touching and studying that uh, for me is really frustrating. And because I know like I'm, I'm not getting it. Everything I'm, I'm learning is just hardening and reifying what we know about Phil Dick rather than, than kind of cracking it open wider. Okay. So 
just to close this up, because we could yeah. do this for four hours. We and certainly I, could. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure now that we've done this, um, our listeners are going to be like, uh, bring that kill guy back. And uh, uh, perhaps we're going to have to get you on for one of the book episodes too, make you reread one of them. I would love to. Something that we, a, a positive note for a guy who struggled for his whole life is that, you know, I look at, mysterious galaxies which is our sci-fi bookstore here in san diego and um we you can walk into mysterious galaxies right now uh, while they do curbside pickup but <laughs> besides the pandemic you can walk in there and there's an entire shelf of mariner edition exactly the same spine copies of of, of all of his books with the, the with the random do androids dream of electric sheep in there yep yep and they're right there and they're in a prominent place and this is a bookstore that sells most, you know, that most of their money is like YA science fiction books and mystery books. But they devote an entire shelf to Philip K. Dick because why? Because it's important. It's canon. And he is, you know, even if they don't sell a book every day, it's important for them to have him there. And and that says something that um, is something that, you know, I think he would have in his lifetime you know, not sure that the, that he would see. And believe me, a lot of the, when you d- talk like we do to your Maltzbergs, to your Spinreds, to your, um, you know, uh, it's not just Dick. It's like Octavia Butler, you know, yeah. Octavia Butler. Everyone knows, thinks she's a prophet now. Thinks, yeah. You know, she's and she is great. Octavia yep. Butler was great. But she didn't have that kind of success in her lifetime. And this is a fear that these older writers have. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Every writer you know, who like, is, I don't want to be like Philip K. Dick, you know, yeah. where my genius is recognized after I'm gone. Right. And every writer who is connected with him is, is a little bit bitter that somehow he managed to, tr- to slip the noose and, you know, be this incredible, you know, it's not just being an important writer, not even like Stephen King, where he yeah. sell a lot of books, but a, but a writer that people think is prescient and important and, you know, revolutionary on and on a whole other level i mean stephen king got me into reading but it never would have gotten me writing a blog or going out to interview his wives or whatever there's something unique about dick's vision that that needs that darkness to 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 work so we can't sit here and and we're having fun talking about it and talking about him and even though people freak out because i think vulcan's hammer is better than cosmic puppets um (laughs) You know, we we can talk about it, people, without getting shitty. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, I think that's the goal. I mean, we should try to do better than Phil did because <laughs> he had trouble talking about other people's books and success and so forth. But yeah, yeah, I mean, but the but the but the but his spiritual assert, like his ambitions, are there for us. Like the goodness that you're supposed to live your life with. Like he laid that out for us in these really powerful literary ways that resonated with me and, and honest to God changed my life. Uh, I was, I was a shittier person before I, 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 le- I read Phil Dick and he clued me into the fact that not only is empathy the important thing, but you have to, you have to be, you have to confront your fears and be vulnerable in order to be empathetic. That allowed me to have a marriage and a family and be closer to the people in my life. And I can never thank him enough for that. Well, uh, I don't know that he made me a better person, but he's definitely made me a better writer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll take that. Um, yeah, yeah. 
but I, I think I started a little later too. And and yeah. I that you're as far as reading all of it. And uh but David, I appreciate everything that you do as a PKD scholar. I think it's really important. I think um, you know, uh and I'm dead serious this summer. I, I'm I'm coming for you uh to uh to uh see the see these places and, and do that journey. Um nothing would make me happier to be honest with you. It is a it's a real privilege to be able to live here and, and see this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well we're we would when we were in Orange County as a crew, we we did some of that stuff in Orange County, but like uh I think that time is a is a is is not the same as as the time that he spent growing up because yeah he's growing yeah. up he's growing up you know it's, yeah it's yeah. wild to walk on the on campus at Berkeley and see the little creek where he used to play while his mom was working in the forestry service that is that's something that not everybody gets yeah not every high school had uh, uh Ursula Le Guin <laughs> <laughs> yeah. time no they sure didn't well, not that they were there at the same time because Dick was getting homeschooled but yeah I mean they that's they a pretty were- amazing thing they were in the building for a couple of the years. At the same. Yeah, I suppose that's correct. I, I always found it. I mean, I don't know if you saw on my on my blog. I they, Ursula Le Guin's childhood house was on the market recently. Yeah, if you want to do an interesting compare and contrast, uh, look at Phil Dick's house where he grew up, and look at the house where Ursula Le Guin grew up, where like Robert Oppenheimer was showing up for dinner and stuff. They're they're really the two sides of Berkeley. Um, that you know, Are really up, well illustrated right there. Yep, yep exactly, yep. exactly. Yeah, well, and, and I remember when you posted that because I, I thought it would be really cool if there was if a George R. R. Martin or somebody would buy that house and turn uh-huh. it into uh, a sci-fi museum. They could take the Locust books and put them. Yeah, there. they could put them there. Absolutely, and you'd be right next to campus, and it's a beautiful building. And who wants to polish all of that dark wood all the time? Get, get it, make it an institution and get it. Exactly. Yeah, right, yeah. That's a fun note to end on because All right. that is, it, it was that, that post where you found Le Guin's childhood home yeah. that where I, I took the deep dive to see all the stuff that you had and, and yeah. like, wow, that's really cool. Mr. Gill, you are amazing. Thank you for coming on the dickheads podcast and everyone at home. Keep it paranoid. Yeah. See you soon. Bye.